When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Calmversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's Calmversant is Christine Seifen, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist and an erstwhile professor of clinical psychology for graduate students. During her time as a professor, she saw the encroachment of critical social justice ideology with its critical race theory and other sorts of far-left dogmas exert itself upon the professors and then intrude into the classroom and pervert psychotherapy and also the knowledge of human psychology. In this conversation, we talk about her growing up as an immigrant from Egypt in the Bay Area of California and her own multicultural experience there and how that did not align with the stereotypes embedded and perpetuated by critical social justice and then also her path of development as a human being and then her reaction to this racist ideology when it met up with her and her inability not to resist it. Wonderful woman, wonderful professor, and wonderful guest. I do betray my own um, non-biased style later on because it does kind of anger me what's happening to our institutions of higher education, even though I shouldn't be surprised at this point. However, if you would like to learn more about Christine or connect with her, links to her socials are down there in the description. Without further ado, here is Christine Seifen. How do I pronounce your last name? So, Chris, uh, C. Finn. So if you think of C. Finn, the fin of a fish, C. Hmm. Fish in the sea. <laughs> What's the, um, do you know the etymology or where that, uh, how that came to be, the name? Is it Arabic? Yeah, actually, Arabic? Yeah, it is Arabic and it means two swords, actually. So kind of interesting, but that's what our last name means. It's actually a shortened version of what our official last name is. My parents moved to the country, um, you know, 40 plus years ago. They dropped half of their last name because it was just very long. And actually, they were worried that it was too Middle Eastern sounding. Hmm. And they were concerned about that. Uh, You know, their thought process was, we don't want this to ever be used against us. Hmm. So that's quite interesting. So they moved in, what, 82, 83? They moved in 78, and I was born in 79, so I was technically, you know, I mean, I I was born within, you know, a year of them having moved here. But uh, because the reason they left was very much around kind of the religious persecution and the fact that they're they're Christians, right? So... um, Coptic? In Egypt, Coptic. Yes. That's exactly right. Right. So there's just a handful of those folks left, and there was a lot of violence at that time. And so essentially for them, they had just become used to not being fully upfront about their religious practices, about where they came from, because you could always pinpoint, you know, where 
the villages that my dad lived in very clearly they're Coptic villages that were out in you know the, the middle of nowhere I mean they're still there but at that time they didn't always have running water my dad had a well in his backyard and had to pump that water um growing up and you know it's so if you are to you know if he were to say i'm from you know the villages of x y and z then it would be known right away that those villages are coptic so you have to be very careful there and i think that's the reason why they were very caught coming into the u.s to not be in any way mistaken uh, for something that they, you know, didn't do or or to be j judged um, in some unfair fashion, because that, that was just sort of ingrained in them. Hmm. But also what was ingrained in them is, hey, I don't have to tell anybody anything. I can do my thing. I can live my life and be an American. So there was that was you know, the other component, obviously. So it's sort of like trying to shift that mindset was very hard, I think, for them to do. It takes a lot of, took a lot of time to, I think, reach some level of comfortability and safety and being able to be very upfront about that. My sister has an American first name too, um, and it's Carolyn. So my parents are just, were so careful about wanting us to blend in because they stuck out and suffered for it. So they're the last names. Interesting that you asked me that question because that just kind of ties in that origin um, of, of where that came from to what the political landscape was like when they left Egypt and came to the U.S. And it was like a seven period wait before they, they had, ended up becoming full on citizens. So they did it legally. They had to get permission from governments, the, you know, the Egyptian government, and then they had to be able to, and then my uncle had won a lottery, and a couple of things kind of all came together at one time, but it took several years, and it was extremely um, stressful, and they were just not wanting us in particular, their children in particular, to get prejudged because of our names, and therefore looked over for jobs or for, you know, going to college, um, anything like that, so they tried to do, do away with it as best as they could. And so now the last name, it's very hard for people to place. Some people think that it's the F-E-I-N is, you know, a derivative of a Jewish last name, which it isn't, but the fine, right? So um, it's okay, you know, it was, okay. and, it, and it, truthfully, it would have been fine uh, to, to probably have that last name, but it just speaks to what kind of, kind of trauma they themselves faced leaving a place that was so divided and, and divided in a way that was very, violent um you know we're talking about like rocks being thrown at your head if you walk you know past you know the the, the church if you're coming out from church rocks thrown at your face we're talking about burning of churches we're talking about you know my mother not wanting to go back and visit because you know you sort of maybe looked at as a traitor in a sense if you were able to make it to the u.s and you came here by people that really hated the country so you had that going on as well it, it, you know in some ways yeah it was great that they were able to, to do that and to create a better life and their families were you know my mom's family came my dad's family didn't but the ultimate sort of um 
concern, I guess, was, you know, either you're looked at as being too Americanized uh, when you go back to visit your roots and you're looked at as a traitor, um, or, you know, you're looked at as somebody who uh, is uh, mocking the culture if you don't go back and completely... So you're, you're a traitor and you're also mocking, you know, the, the culture if you're not dressed in the way that they want to see you dressed. Again, this is 40 plus, over 45 years ago. We're not in that place today in Egypt. But that was also the case. So there was a lot of covering and all of that. Even though they were not Muslim, um, there's still the pressure of you are a woman, you know, uh, don't, you know, you need to be modest and all of that. So there, it was a lot of, you know, kind of intersecting influences there and for them, so which is when, why they never went back. Yeah. When were your parents born then? So my mom was born in 1945 and my dad in 1940. Okay. And so, so that's in the middle of World War II where uh, I don't remember the colonial influence or the European uh, influence on Egypt. But at that point, when that, when that, creates a power vacuum, then there's a lot of reshuffling. Yes. And so I'm sure that they lived yes. through pretty tumultuous times. Tumultuous is a, the most perfect word to use, you know, economically. They, they had a certain level of wealth and status there uh, because they were educated, both of them. And they're, that means something, you know, there, of course, because you didn't get a whole lot of women going to college, especially, but in general, you know, that's just not the it's it's the kind of this elite class gets to go to college and do all that. My parents happened to be able to do it. And so they ended up, you know, being able to have, you know, housekeepers and my mom just kind of worked part time, but didn't really need, you know, they didn't need her income. My dad, you know, traveled a lot and all of that was great financially for them, but they foresaw, you know, our girls, if we had, well, I wasn't born, but my sister, for sure, and if they have more children, if we stay here, one generation down the line, this is not going to work. You know, they're not going to be able to have those opportunities. I don't think they're going to be able to succeed because they could see a huge shift coming from, you know, hundreds of miles away, even whether it was religious or, or not. I mean, you, Egypt was an ally with the U.S., so you'd expect, you know, there was this kind of this reciprocity there. But um, and they try to kind of say that they're not that they're that they're secular that they separate church and state but that's not culturally what was happening culturally what was happening was much different as you know and i think after sadat was assassinated that really flipped in that direction and when was he assassinated the 80s i want to say oh wow okay yeah and what was I your dad's I career be, or industry yeah uh, he was an engineer electrical yeah. engineer and so was my mother i mean there's sort of like three careers in Egypt that you go for are doctor, lawyer, or engineer. So even if you move to the States, that's what is impressed upon you. Oftentimes, you know, those are the three, but yes, so they were engineers. Hmm. And so you were, well, I guess you were born in America. Yeah, I was born in America. So my parents, I, they came in 78, maybe I don't really, I, they had probably, they had been here for, just under 12 months. My mom got pregnant right away. That was not the plan. Uh, so it was, a, oh, surprise. You know, it wasn't a plan because they weren't settled. So they didn't know much English either, almost nothing. 
So they actually, it was before, English is taught in schools there now, and that's commonplace pretty much in most of those area, you know, areas of the world, but it wasn't back then. So they learned from scratch uh, English, meaning writing, reading, everything, you know, the, the way Arabic. the language is written. Yeah, from Arabic to English, because, you know, Arabic, they read right to left. I mean, everything is just left completely right. different. Yeah, left to right. Yes. Yeah backwards <laughs> it was all backwards um, and for your point yeah. of view did did they land in a community and what what was your multicultural experience in america did you have like kind of two lives one in the public and then one in the private with with regard to culture yeah. or did you have a extended family extended culture where your parents landed so good question um i had a very unique situation because my mother her her family so her mother my mom's mom my grandmother and my grandmother's siblings so that would be my great aunts uncles they came here and said let's recreate our own village of egypt here in the states so that that generation their children uh are very tightly wound together and wanted i mean literally bought homes within a couple of houses of each other. So they could just walk on over. And this is very common in Egypt at the time, if you live in a suburb, if you live outside of Cairo, for example, or, or um, whatever, that you just, everybody leaves their door open. Everybody knows everyone. You want to live close by to people because you want help with maybe the kids or you want company or you want help cooking, whatever it is. It's just a familial component. This like boundaries is a very westernized view that they did not, you know, hold. They wanted to be able to have their own little village and be safe. That's what they wanted here. So that's my mom's side. That's it. That's what the, 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 the big kind of the main group of them. So then you have my mom, though, and her siblings. And uh, they wanted something different. And I would say actually my mom more than any of the other siblings wanted us to assimilate. They wanted us to embrace America, embrace the culture, embrace, you know, all of the positive values and qualities that made up America, which to them, family values are just the essential core in the nuclear family and the extended family. All of that is highly valued. And it was seen as a place where you could do that and be open to speak about, you know, being Christian or Coptic, and that you wouldn't be in any kind of trouble. So that was wonderful. But my parents still, you know, it, it's funny, because my father was worried we would end up, you know, doing what the American kids do, drink and and do drugs and be on the street, live on the street. That's a very, you know, <laughs> common expression. Um, and, you know, my mother worried about that, too. But I think my mother gave us the benefit of the doubt for and just had a lot of faith and uh, tried, you know, their very best. And they're quite frankly, I didn't see either one of them growing up. My sister raised me a big portion of my life because, you know, to go and and shoot for those dreams you have to work here you have to learn the language you have to go back to school and you have to get your kids have to have some sort of support or they need to be you need you need help you know um in in rear child rearing well that wasn't going to happen with my mom's family that wanted to create a mini egypt so she had to kind of go it alone from the rest of her siblings with my father who was dismal the first two decades he was here I'll tell you. Yes. Un oh, wow. It's unreal. So well, she so just wanted us to absorb. Right. And the rest of them wanted to recreate Egypt. My mom said, no, 
you know, she's very close to them and would love parties, all that kind of stuff. Do as I say, not as I do. So while she very much got engulfed socially with her family in this mini Egypt they created, she told us to stop it and not do that. And don't, don't do that. Go make American friends, go live an American life. And if, you know, you like the food and the the, the culture and the the music and the, the the language. That's always there, you know. So, um, but don't in, don't embrace uh, qualities of the Middle Eastern lifestyle uh, that we don't want you to to embody. That's why we came here to get away from that. Hmm. That's what they would say. And so, your dad takes a tremendous hit in his career, moving from uh, being a structural engineer uh, yes. engineer to America, yes. from Egypt to America. So he has to start over. I can see why that would present a man a particular amount of challenges. Two two decades is a long time yes. to assimilate or, yes. or to work that out. Yes. But uh, so he had to start at the bottom. What did he end up doing yes. when you guys hit the He's ground? St- yeah, he, so he started working at a gas station. He started working at a gas station, and my mother got a job um, on the assembly line at some tech company. You know, back this was before the Silicon Valley boom and all of that, uh, and a lot of the assembly and stuff they were doing at that time was by hand. I mean, now you wouldn't, you know, there's other technology. But that's exactly right. So my dad started as working at the gas station. My mom was at the assembly line Then she brought him in to where she was working. So they could at least be at the same place uh, while they went to school to learn English. And then they both went back to school to get degrees or to, to update their obsolete degrees in technology and engineering. So it is 100% correct that my dad lost all of that when he came to the country and um, I, you know, I don't know if he, you know, till this day, he'll talk about regretting, you know, he got accepted into a master's program to go become a software engineer here and that he chose not to do that. And he chose to just stay where he was. He, he'll still, I mean, he's in his eighties now, but you know, a few years ago when he was a little bit, you know, you know, less dementia <laughs> than he has oh, now, but yeah. he would sit and be able to explain, you know, that he got into this, you know, master's program and he really wishes that he had, you know, gone through with it because he feels like he would have accomplished more and done more. So I think that those are some of the things that hung, you know, kind of around in his mind and, you know, choosing to, to not do that and to focus more on us and your current job and growing in your current job versus going to school um for something that's going to come later um it's i think that he that plagued him for a while he doesn't really didn't and something he didn't talk about much but um for sure contributed to the i I, resentment's a strong word but i want to use that to some resentments he had about being here um where my mother had none about being here one of my best or favorite uh, friends on the internet is uh, Sasha Ayad. She's a, a counselor specializing in uh, gender uh, therapy uh, with teens mm-hmm. and stuff. Uh, uh, she's she's also Coptic Egyptian transplant. Uh, I think they moved to Canada and yes. then down to the United States. And what you're talking about uh, mirrors a lot of her experience. Um, and it seems like 
her and her sister are super ambitious and super hard work ethic. Yeah. It sounds like your family yes. has a lot of ambition and a yes. lot of work ethic. So I'm wondering how that yeah. got you uh, set up in your trajectory. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, no, they, they did. I, You know, there was the only way out of, of where we were. I mean, we grew up in an area that was po- it's poverty level. I mean, we're not even talking lower middle class, we, were, we lived in a poverty commu- a community that was impoverished and there was no services back then. In it was all America? The, the, in America when they first moved here. You know, you the, the gas station my dad got a job at was on the corner of the street we lived so he could walk to work, right? Because they didn't even, weren't even able to have two cars. So there was a lot of violence in that community and it was about 95% white, that community. So it was very different from what we talk about impoverished California is today and how people talk about, you know, the impoverished communities being minorities. We were the only brown people really in the area, um, almost at all. And we saw a lot of crime. I mean, there was a lot of uh, gun Violence. They were kidnapping children. I, being a child in the '80s, the kidnapping of kids, where the car would drive by slowly and say, "Come here, little girl," was so actively happening that I was approached by a car uh, twice. Uh, that was, "Hey, little girl, I'm lost." That whole time period in the world, and we didn't have cell phones, GPS, none of that stuff. So it's like you, the "Don't Talk to Strangers" campaign was super important. All of that was happening in my community. We would sometimes late at night, you could see people changing license plates from one car to another because they were going to, you know, going to do a getaway. Our house was broken into three times. One time my sister was home. So it was not safe and it was not, uh, we didn't, it, it was just not safe. That was my first introduction to, to, to how white people were, actually. I did not... It was not a, you know, gee, I've inherited this sort of, you know, internalized racism type of stuff because I didn't experience black people that way. I didn't experience Latinos that way. I experienced white people that way, though, for quite some time growing up. About where um, where is this? You don't have to be too specific, but I'm just interested. Fremont. Yeah, Fremont in the Bay Area. So oh, okay. it's a suburb outside San Francisco, Fremont now. I mean, back then it was, you know, you can't live in the Bay Area now without having just an amount, you know, it's, it's, but it's, those areas are no longer, you know, poverty. They've just gentrified, even the right word, but they've completely um, redone that entire, because all those people now that live in Fremont are working in Silicon Valley and, that's where you want to live. Uh, you want to live in neighborhoods like that, which at the time were total dumps and, you know, very impoverished. And then over time, you know, became where you want to be if you're going to work in technology. So, you know, my 
parents upgraded us eventually from a poverty neighborhood to a middle class, like very middle class. And I mean, their home went from, I don't know, they bought it for 195000 Today, it's worth $1.4 million. Unbelievable. Yeah. But for Fremont, this little like suburban, okay, area. And I think it's mostly um, the census. I, I think there's a huge, huge percentage there that's Indian, actually. And I think some Pakistanis as well. So, um, you know, diversity, I don't... Uh, I guess for me, diversity was just, I don't know, we kind of live, it, it didn't, there was not a black, no one told me that black people or that brown Latinos are dangerous and bad. And I did not inherit that way of thinking. That's what made me so distressed about what some of this ideology with the critical social justice you know, to kind of force feed that. I, I personally didn't feel that that was my experience. I'm not saying I wasn't, you know, in some way. But were you, know, you discriminated against based on your uh, looks? Oh, uh, sure. I was. And, you know, it, it was not by the whites. I was discriminated a lot by the Latinos and the blacks who in that time for me, where I was going to school, especially, um, I went to a Catholic school. So it wasn't neighborhood kids that were necessarily at my school, private, which means there are kids that lived in the nice parts of Fremont that went there. There are kids that lived in the crappy parts of Fremont. But they, being Latino or being, you know, black, that was that was cool. They were considered attractive. I mean, you know, the, the, the white blonde haired women too. Yes. But the, the people they thought were very beautiful were that. So with, with me, it's like, well, you're, you're Egyptian. What is this middle Eastern thing? And so I would get teased constantly about that, about being a camel jockey and, you know, sand and fill in the N word after that. Yeah. Quite a bit by people who were not white. So, you know, again, it was this experience of, of just, I, I wanted to be Latina because they were considered the really hot girls. I wanted to be, you know, anything other, blonde hair and, and blue eyes wasn't really the, the most attractive. It was the Latina girls, the ones who had the light enough skin uh, and pizzazz and some flair. And it became very trendy to be a Middle Eastern woman later and for men to be attracted to that. So speaking from a woman's perspective. So, you know, again, this way of growing up, um, by the time I went to high school, my parents, we were middle class, my parents put us again in private school. At that point, though, now you have private school where that's going to cost a lot more than a little, you know, Catholic elementary school. So talk about seeing a lot of money coming in at that point. Now, now I'm seeing people that are way outside of my parents' financial bracket. In and this every is what, 92, 93? Yes, they graduated in 97. So yeah, that's right. Now they, um, again, you know, they weren't a white only group that was privileged or that held privilege in the school or in the environment. We all wanted to learn Spanish. That was the big deal. We all wanted to, you know, 
I, you know, look, you, you know, the, the hairstyles even that we wanted to do were very much leaning toward that. It, it, it wasn't, you know, with the hairspray and the big curls and all of that. Did and you have the bangs? So I, I did not put my sister. <laughs> she refuses to show the photos. But so it's got, we buried that. But, you know, I thought the, the, the crazy, you know, curly sprayed and, you know, all of all of that. It was just attractive. And anyway, those people, those kids had a lot of money. I mean, they were getting brand new cars way outside of my parents, you know, budget for sure. And we didn't look at it as a white, black, Latino, Asian, et cetera. Um, was it clicky? Yeah, clicky at every high school. That's part of high school life. What was clicked. your identity? Uh, uh, drama girl, uh, sports girl? girl like which spice were you in high school the environmental i was uh, the list? <laughs> i was the forgettable one the one that goes to the class reunion and people go oh you went to this school really oh <laughs> i might recognize your name yeah i did not so i had no i and it, it wasn't you know I, my black friend actually who was my friend since i met her in first grade and we've been friends all these many years we ended up at the same high school. She tried to get me into the popular clique and they didn't accept me. So my black friend was popular with a couple of Latina women, of course, some white women, some Asian women. And, and I was I was not. Uh, and she tried to kind of pull me in. So she had social status and popularity that blew me out of the water. So did the football players. We had several that were, you know, black guys and, you know, David, Slo I shouldn't say his name, but everybody swooned over this guy like he was just, you know, the best thing ever. And interracial dating, I, none of this was it was just normal. I, I it was normal. And I didn't fit in anywhere because I didn't really connect with being Egyptian. I kind of learned that owning it would be a little problematic, at least in a, a, a setting that's um the school environment because I had been teased a lot, so I couldn't really own it. My parents didn't really understand if I was to be part of American culture in the way that at least my mom really wanted. I needed to have the clothes to do that. I needed to have, you know, a certain way of presenting myself to be able to do that. And they didn't, you know, value that stuff. They didn't think it was important. But they it, just wanted me to go to school and be smart. And it, I was. It sounds like you didn't value that either. Did you affect anything? Did you do the Valley Girl thing? Did you adopt any personas? Did you even play around with personas to figure out how to be? Because if you're forgettable, it sounds like you were probably just like, I'm going to learn. I'm going to think. I'm going to study. That's, that's what it was. And, you know, a friend of mine who's Indian also, you know, known her, still know her till today. She and I became very tight. We both felt that sort of, we're not part of any group. We're not jocks. We're not cheerleaders. We're not, we're not super intellectual either. We weren't the AP. Every class was AP class. So yeah. we didn't feel like we had a home and all we would talk about is how life would just completely radically change for the better. Once we graduated high school, so we were able to kind of keep each other afloat in this environment of not knowing how to define myself or what kind of identity to, 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 to you know, kind of incorporate. I didn't try anything on for size. I kind of just said, well, I'll find my way when I go to college. My job now is to just 
go to school, focus on that and commiserate with my friend Maggie, who I saw every single day and all weekend long about, I mean, there was a point in time where I tried the grunge thing because I had a friend who was uh, very, you know, Kurt Cobain died, I think, when I was in freshman year. So, yeah. you know, there that movement, you know, a lot of music from that time that I really know well is sort of the grunge movement. But I think I went to a thrift store and bought like a pair of lime green corduroys. My sister's like, why are you wearing used clothes? And those are hideous. And that was the end of that. So I just washed that component and you know just essentially i mean there was you know guys i met that i you know worked at the ice cream shop with that i liked and i i tried to find as much outside of school and the community there um as i could but you know what keep what put me to sleep at night is is okay things are going to get much better in college you know you'll start to feel attractive you'll start to meet guys who like you you'll so my insecurities you know I, I didn't fit in with that grunge group i like i said tried it a couple of times and just sort of was out outcasted um mm -hmm. similarly my sister was too when she went to the same school a few years before me but anyway that's a whole nother side thing we, we had to build social support outside mm -hmm. i bring it up because uh and this is pre-internet your coming of age is pre-internet and yeah. I've done a lot of interviews specifically with uh, detransitioners and a theme that keeps on cropping up is this obsession with identity and yes. being this thing, um, being yes. anorexic or being uh, trans, yes. trans or gay or the, the, these identities are a huge obsession for the youth. And, yes. and a lot of uh, Gen Xers, uh, we try to comment, oh, they're, they're just going through a goth phase with surgery and hormones you know why don't you just be a goth but i think that the level of identity or the way that we conceptualized identity because i'm a little bit older than you uh was yep. not as hardcore not as concrete as what the kids are yes. getting um obsessed with nowadays that i i totally agree with that and i would say even it was malleable and that was okay so it seems to me um, that there isn't any room for that kind of, you know, flexibility to be accepted. You know, it's almost trying to find the words I want to use even to here, not but, be accepted is unacceptable or an identity in and of itself. Yes. Yeah. Yes. hundred percent. We didn't think about like, okay, well, you know, suicide is the way out. We didn't think about the fact that you know, this was for us, everything was temp. I mean, for, at least for me, it was temporary. It was malleable. If I, you know, wanted to try the grunge thing and it didn't work out, it was okay. If I wanted to try whatever else, it was okay. I didn't fit in with the jocks, like the cheerleader girls, because I just didn't look that way. And I didn't, you know, perform, you know, I, I, I wasn't sportsy or what I, I did swim. I was on the swim team in, in high school, but that's not the big, you know, draw um but there was room to move and you know you kind of saw some kids moving into different cliques and it was fine we actually had an lgb not t it was gay and lesbian and at the time a group on campus and okay i mean great whatever they went to prom together everybody was that was open or out of the closet people were not teased they weren't harassed they weren't treated differently they weren't yeah, they hung out at the one lunch table together, but it was not this ha-ha big joke and pranks being pulled on them. And I, I went to a Catholic high school. None of that was, 
yeah, it was like, whatever, you have the right to live and date and be whoever you want to be in that environment there. Those popular kids, the, the ones that were being teased were like the scrawny little white kids, the kids that, you know, were uh, or really overweight, maybe, uh, mm. and, and just weird is what they would just say weird, you know, but where, you know, you, you see some social awkwardness, let's say. Mm. So me, it was about blending in, not affiliating myself with anything in particular, blend in, disappear into the background. That group of people, you know, okay, you want to go to the prom together, go ahead. Nobody. And if you're a straight person and hung out with them, nobody said anything either. I mean, it, it didn't matter. It was almost to me just the way it is everywhere. I didn't know that I was kind of in this weird hmm. vacuum here. Um, but you were aware of class or moneyed class yeah. was way more, way more distinct for me. And that is so perfect because I think that's what people sometimes miss, uh, at least for me. The privilege was squarely laid in the class, not the color of my skin, not being a woman, not any of those things. It was class. It was seeing my black friend who had a lot of money, you know, and she went off to be extremely successful. She's gotten PhDs from like two or three different, um, you know, Ivy League schools, whatever, you know, the kind of the definition of this very successful you know, I was envious of her because she had her parents had money to get her clothes that she liked. Her parent, you know, she didn't have to work in high school. I did uh, because my parents didn't have really a lot of extra money. It took them a long time to rebuild, uh, which and they never reached past a certain point. But you know, it so that to me was such a bigger issue. This idea of class and money and how that plays into who gets accepted or who's considered attractive or, you know, who, who's going to be respected at school. Um, and it, it wasn't about race at all. And it wasn't about gender identity or any of that. It was the have and have nots. I mean, just very basically, that's mm. how that operated. And you had these kids that were super poor that like, you know, their parents, any dime went to them being able to wear the cool clothes so that they could fit in but they were there on scholarship or grants, you know? Uh, so they couldn't keep up outside of school either, but they, they hit it best as they could. Did you, when college hit, did you blossom? I, you know, that's so interesting. I, yes, I definitely did. It was the first time I actually had a boyfriend and started dating. So I was very, um, very slow. So I, I did blossom, I think, in, in, in college. I mean, I went to UCSB for my first two years. Um, you know, it was pointed out to me by people that it was mostly white. I didn't necessarily look around and think that. But that's when all that started happening, where it started to be kind of pointed out that, you know, there's all these white people here and Christine, you're not white. And interestingly, my Indian friend who would con who started to go in that direction herself like christine you got to look and see you know the forest for the trees here there's there's you know white privilege everywhere well she's married to a wealthy white man wealthy so it's sort of like this kind of you know the authenticity of what these arguments were I, it didn't land with me i just didn't find them to be authentic and i said to her okay great would you bring a black man home though to your parents she said absolutely not never would not with a 10-foot pole and that friend of mine has BLM signs on her Facebook page and all sorts of crap everywhere. 
So that's the type of stuff that was starting to happen. And I'm thinking, okay, well, now I'm becoming very, very aware that like there's a problem here, you know, there's a problem. Maybe I'm, you know, supposed to be more aware that I've been marginalized. I didn't think about it that way. Um, You know, my sister has lighter skin than me. She looked white. I mean, that's part of maybe part of it too, but that constant, like, you're not white, you're not white, you're, you know, there's these privileged people, like that started in college. So yeah, I found myself, but then I also looked around and said, oh gosh, I'm missing the boat. Okay, and let me jump on this bandwagon. And that's what I did. I jumped right on that bandwagon, Mm -hmm. you know, and said, okay, well, yeah, the oppression. And and talk about the cognitive dissonance. Here are my parents going, it doesn't matter how hard it is. It doesn't matter that you don't, you know, have help. Pick yourself up by your boots and walk forward. Because you keep doing that, you're eventually going to get somewhere. At least you don't have to, you know, take cover, you know, for the rest of your life, right? At least you don't have to, you know, um, you'd, you're better off in a small shack and have some level of safety feeling and, and, and comfort than to, to, you know, be always, you know, looking, you know, be- over your shoulder to see what's coming next. So I have this over here. Then I have this side over here telling me that these white people have made it such that I cannot succeed or I wasn't going to be able to succeed. So I'm totally just, that was a very big fissure, I guess, and cognitive because those ideas were totally clashing. And I remember a black studies professor of mine saying, you know, he's talking about the civil rights, the, the free, um, kind of where he, where he where he theorized the or, or origins of actual racism started to develop in this country. And he talked about it from a class point of view. He talked about a period of time where you saw the poor whites and the poor blacks and anybody who was poor um, started banding together and saying, hey, wait a minute, what's happening with this group up here who think that they're better you know, than us or whatever? And that the only way to handle that from this small group of controlling class or elitism is to divide and separate, divide and conquer. Let's start to inject, you know, into the system, this idea of you being worse uh, off because you're black and I'm better off because I'm white. And that, you know, kind of what makes you different. So it was an interesting take on racism. And for him, it, there was a lot of classism that sort of laid the stage or foundation i mean when we're not talking about when you know blacks first came to the country i mean i'm talking about that 19 early 1900s probably maybe mm-hmm. after after the civil war mm-hmm. around the early 1900s and that's what he was speaking about is that this is um this was a way to 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 maintain some control to sow division that's when that first idea of divide and conquer have groups fighting each other uh in order to maintain you know, power mm-hmm. first kind of, I think I saw that in a real way. My sister used to say it all the time when we were kids, like, Oh, everybody's fighting about gay marriage and whatever. That's stupid. Like let people do whatever they want to do. We need to focus on the fact that these you know, politicians are doing things that are harming us as Americans. And they're all, well, well we're squabbling amongst ourselves. There are these huge, horrible things being done and we need to come together and we need to, you know, see what they're doing she was very i mean vocal about that <laughs> and she ha- highly influenced me because she raised me most of my years of early life 
so you know that was always kind of stewing around in there too but it's hard when you're kind of i think sort of inundated with people telling you that the problem is 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 this and everybody's telling you that's the problem therefore you need to believe that's the problem so i was very confused well, there, there's there's that just being inundated by those ideas, but there's also a social aspect to uh, you will be an outcast if you don't agree and you can't climb yes. unless you agree. Yes. Right. Yes. So there's, there's contours of power. Absolutely. That. Yeah, it, it definitely. It's, you know, at the risk of not belonging. Uh, and I think I did carry a cause in order to feel like I belonged. I. You know, we had the uh, Take Back the Night movement that was very powerful. And I hopped on it just because it was where, you know, women could come together. And, and in some way, and I don't want to take from this movement because this is, I'm not saying that women have not been, you know, the, you know the, the sexually objectified or whatever. That's, Wait, d- I, I think everybody knows d- that. Did they ever get the night back? Or like even a portion of it, like maybe from two thirty to three thirty in the morning. We just never found it. We were just out there, and most of us didn't really know what we were out there doing. We didn't know what the issue was. We were just out there trying to say, "Hey, you know, let's come together and okay, let me take out my." feelings about men not finding me desirable. Okay, I'm going to be very vulnerable here with you, Benjamin. Let me just, you know, the, the, those feelings that I had at that time, let me take it out on men by joining in with women who are angry at men. So I'm just going to be mad. That's what I'm going to do. And it's because men don't find me attractive. The men that I find attractive don't like me back. And that didn't have, you know, I didn't start dating guys really till I mean, really end of college. But there was a home for me there because it was a way to just this misplaced or displaced kind of resentment or pain or agony or whatever. It's very torturous. Um, here I could just be with these women. I don't know what we're taking back. Uh, we're just walking around and chatting and, you know, holding a sign, um, totally oblivious to what any of the root causes were or whatever. And, but I didn't care, you know, I, it was a way to just, yeah, I stood up and shared some stories about growing up and whatever and all that. But it was more than that. It was, you know, this is a this is the place where we can just hate men. And that's wonderful. And I felt like that whole movement. Now, me too. OK, 10 times. Now that's on steroids. But that in and of itself, the way it was sort of laid out, I started to see the roots or the beginnings of the hate, this hate men. So now there's kind of that gender thing starts to shape up and then this whole Christine you're not white starts to kind of shape up um and that's when all of this other I would say common sense that my sister and I would talk about or what you know we'd we'd see in the world at large just started to exit out of my own consciousness and I jumped on you know to that sort of rat um and there I was you know, being the good little liberal girl that I should be and being a Democrat, that's what you do. And, you know, protesting and, and, and whatnot over, over issues that I didn't know what the issue was. It was a way to just be together with a group of people. It's almost like, um, 
you know, how many of these kids are going along with whatever these narratives are as a way to belong more so than them actually believing it, you know, and that's kind of how it was. But that was college for me. I was a little bit, I think college, even just a little bit more, you know, um, sophisticated cognitively than you are in high school. That, that, that real difficult, and that's where, you know, so much of the problem is. But anyway, so I saw myself going that direction and it was really college. Um, so I had a lot of different messages there. And then we have this black professor telling us, hey, racism is injected into the system on purpose, you guys. Wake up. This isn't that this is an in systemic racist, you know, type of system because, you know, whatever. It's because we've allowed. I mean, he sort of just had this really these people have told you to hate each other. It's not it's coming from people that hate you. You know, the, these elitists hate all of you. They're egging you on to hate each other. So that you don't overthrow them. I mean, that big kind of radical idea. That, so he was, I don't know if he could say that today. I don't know what would happen to him as a black man, black professor, black studies class, if he would be able to actually say that and not get just screamed by all sorts of movements and groups and whatever and to toxic internalized shame about his blackness, whatever the, the narrative is. So there are so many different, but, but I will say all those ideas were present at the same time. It, you don't see that now. You don't see multiple ideas present at the same time, necessarily. Not in California. Uh, well, when did you, uh, what did you end up uh, focusing on in college, studies-wise? So, well, okay, so here's one for you. I wanted to actually be a journalist, and I wanted to do live uh, broadcast journalism. Uh, you know, I wanted to be Barbara Walters and Oprah and all of this kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, UCSB, the UC system didn't really have a specific, in general, they you know, have theory-oriented degrees, and I wanted a practical degree, so I wanted to go into it. So USC, which was ranked probably number two for journalism in the country, you have to, you know, apply to the school, and then you have to apply to the school journalism after so you have multiple interviews, essays, all that. So I said, you know, let me just try it and see if I can transfer out of here uh, for my junior year and focus on being a journalist. And I did. I was able to do that. I got accepted and I got accepted to the journalism school. So I said, all right, let me go ahead and start, you know, um, focusing on that career path. And so I started working for the news. We had our little news and station there and we had actually a radio station in santa barbara before i transferred i was already doing some news reports there so i st started doing you know i jumped on board and i started doing these um stories and i talked to my advisor and she said to me you know where, what's your end game here and i said well i want to be a broadcast journalist i want to be on tv i want to do the news and i want to and i want to interview people i want to do maybe you know an oprah like talk show type of thing and she said well you you can't the way the way that you look you will never be in front of camera ever you need to look more white christine at usc i i I kid you not. I mean, it was like, th this is when, boom. I mean, that that just smacked me in the face. And she said, you wear your hair curly, which I did at the time. That doesn't work. You're overweight. That doesn't work. And, you know, you, you need to kind of whiteify yourself a little bit. So I dropped it. And I said, I don't want to do this. This is, 
you're telling me to change everything about me. And then, you know, you need to accept these reporting jobs in small towns. You can't be picky. You know, the, the lifestyle too is not very um, stable. So I went into PR instead, public relations, and ended up working, getting an internship with a PR agency. I got connected to Comedy Central through that. And then I ended up, when I graduated, uh, working for Comedy Central for a few years. And then MTV, when Comedy Central, you know, AOL Time Warner went down, Viacom bought off everything. So Comedy Central was in that um, umbrella. So then I was working for MTV Networks. So I did the entertainment path and that's the way that I envisioned my career to go. Was that um, fun? Oh, it was just incredible. I mean, it, it's so incredible. I was 21 years old with this whole job. I worked in the publicity department we knew we, we touched everything we knew what was in development so we're around the the development process because you know the and, and the legal team obviously were in the middle of that because we put up the press releases to announce what's coming so there's that there was being connected to the production side because we would take press on set so we have to know who the you know pr production people are we'd get to just walk sets if we wanted to and just hang out bring press on who are connected to that, you're connected to the agents and managers of the, all the talent because you need to, you know, get them to do some publicity for you. So to be in that role and have access to just this incredibly wide, I mean, it's sort of this dream job for a 21 year old kid out of straight out of college, not knowing what I was going to do. And I did not appreciate it at all until i got older i mean isn't that how it goes but it was just so i mean it was fun i we went to new york three three or four times a year and you know we're flown in and there was just so much money everywhere there was also a lot of drugs everywhere and i was naive you know kind of learned a little bit about how the entertainment business is behind the scenes and what you have to do to get ahead so you know i went down that path for a while not the drug path but i just i stayed with it for a while i wanted to see you know where this was going to go um, and then my mother got ill, and that is what shifted my entire life. Huh. 180, never to return to just, yes. you know, uh, that was a that was a big movement. And then at that very same time, again, here we go with another mentor of mine saying to me, you know, look, you know, you're, you know, you're excelling at this job. You know, here, 23 years old, you're if you you can be a VP by the time you're under 30 probably, but this is what you need to do. You need to focus. And that means taking people out, showing an interest in people's lives um, outside work. Like you need to start making those connections. You need to start inviting the head of development out for lunch, going to parties when you can network and mingle with the big players. You have to start caring about how people's kids are doing because at the end of the day all these wonderful achievements that you have all these you know my job was to get publicity so i got a lot of press on i got an exclusive for et when entertainment tonight was huge on one of our shows they were more you know they were up it was like well the person's name is misspelled on the chiron and therefore you know you i yeah it was like that just it didn't matter it was dismissed and she's I understood why that the quality of your work really doesn't matter it's about who likes you and if people had really known who i was and and you know, who you are liked you you'd had those relationships that would not have been the feedback you would have gotten the feedback would have been 
wow, you got that crummy show, an exclusive with Entertainment Tonight. So that was when I went, oh, okay, I see where we are here. You're telling me, you know, I have to intermingle and act like I care to kind of sleep, sleep my way through the top. Not, and I'm not saying sex. It's, I'm using this term broadly, whether that's, you know, hanging out with, you know, who they hang out with or whatever. And I, I didn't want to commit myself to that. So, you know, but, and my mother got sick at the same time. And so I said, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm not going to do this. I'm, I'm going to be a therapist, you know, and I, it, it was just a total, yes. Out of the blue or did you have a dream? <laughs> was there like some sort of sign? Yeah. I mean, I was trying to, you know, I wanted to go to grad school cause I, I was kind of lost. I think, um, I knew I wanted to make money. Uh, ironically, I paid less than being a therapist than I ever did, uh, in any other kind of job, but, um, I wanted to make money. I wanted to be successful. Um, so it didn't just right out of the blue. It was almost like when my mom got sick that that triggered in me, okay, now these changes or these things you're talking about doing, now you need to pursue that. So I was already looking into MBA programs and things like that. And I turned down an, uh, um, an offer to, to go to a program in New York City. And that's where I wanted to go because they accepted me kind of late and I didn't have time to coordinate leaving. And then my mom got sick before, like right after that happened. So I didn't go. Um, so I was still kind of thinking, well, I feel like I need to do something still and I, I want to help people or I want to somehow in some way uh, do something meaningful, I think. So I started with organizational psychology and thought maybe that's a way to bridge kind of the corporate in me or what people, you know, tend to see um, with this part that, you know, is interested in change. I mean, <laughs> organizational psychology is really what I thought it was. You know, I kind of had a different, I didn't understand kind of the, the politics of the corporate world, but that was where I kind of thought maybe I could marry these two things and, and, you know, impact change and at the same time make good money and still be involved in the corporate world. And so I took a couple of classes at Antioch and the ones that they had an organizational management, you know, uh, master's program at the time the intro class though was a bridge class so students that were going to go off to clinical psychology took it students that were going off to community psychology all these other or organizational psychology and so i met a lot of people in that class that were clinical um track and i just said, you know, I, this is, I think my calling and, um, I've always, people always come to me when they have a problem. You know, it was one of the, you know, it's just, you know, naive and green 23, uh, 24 year olds, you know, the way I looked at, you know, what that was going to be and thought and all that, what, 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 what it meant. <laughs> um, I was skewed and, you know, I'm a fellow former professor. So I see my 20, you know, three year old, you know, students, some of them, and think some maturation uh, left to go. But anyway, so that's when I kind of crossed over. And then I said, well, great, you know what, I'll be able to make a whole bunch of money per hour work part time, I can help my mom, I can, 
you know, work, work less. I, I, so it wasn't even necessarily like a bleeding heart in me. There was also some component of that that felt like I'd have more control over my life. I imagine I would be the, um, you know, worried well therapist, you know, working with the worried wealthy, right? The ones to the couch therapists who come in and pay you $300 an hour every week because they can't, you know, seem to get along with whomever, whatever it is, um, all that kind of crap that you see on TV. So I thought, oh, gee, well, that's, that's, I'll make a lot of money doing that. And it can be part time and I can, you know, take care of my mom. And, you know, that, that's really what was behind that. Um, also, it was somewhat of an escape and also really inaccurately understanding what I was going to be doing. Um, so it just was this, I said, forget it. I'm dropping this organizational management thing. I'm going down this track. I'm going to do what these people do. I'm going to make the kind of money these people make. And so that was where that went. So it was still a bit, you know, corporate driven. I don't mm-hmm. know, in some weird way. I, You don't have to answer this, but uh, you brought up that it took your dad 20 years to adjust to America. And this is about the same time that your mom gets sick. And if I'm doing the math correctly, your dad kind of... yeah a change happens in his heart or, or something. Yeah, I, you're good. You, 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 perfect math there because that's exactly what happened. Now my parents got divorced. So my parents got divorced before my mom got sick. That 20, after 25-ish years or so, maybe of being married, maybe less. I was 19, so I can't remember the exact math there. It took my mother leaving him and him being sort of estranged from us because my mother left him and him blaming us to start to like and it so we were cut off from my dad for quite some years after that and it took kind of all of that um for him to circle back and to see that he was still able to you know amass you know, money, and he was still able to, you know, he was went to therapy for the first time. And, you know, I think it, he had to learn how to do things for himself, how to wash his own clothes. I mean, stuff that he never had to worry about before. That's, I think, where the turn came. And then, you know, he retired young, and he started traveling back to Egypt to see his family and how they lived, and he would come home. And it was very stark, night and day, you know, difference. He has a couple of brothers who are well off. One of them is pretty high up in the ambassador-ish level. Um, But for the most part, you know, all the communities and stuff that he grew up in, you know, when he was a kid or just full of just, I mean, a lot of them aren't even standing up anymore. And uh, there's just a lot of destroyed, you know, kind of areas. So... All of that happened and needed to happen for him to be able to have, take a good hard look at himself and America, what it meant and what parts of this sort of Egyptian life uh, or, or Egyptian cultural, you know, environment uh, meant. And at the end of the day, just because he believes that once you get married, you're married for, for eternity, according to God. Just because he believes divorce is wrong, just because he believes that you should never break up a marriage, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. So he had to be humbled. Hmm. And that's a lot of what happened is this, this smack in the face where, you know, my, they had a lot of problems 
in their marriage that were never that they were arranged it was a whole mess so mm. that has a lot to do with this story too but that's what it took that is the exact time when my mom ends up leaving right so she's left this marriage now she's become free she's really embraced and assimilated into american culture she was dating and she'd call me up and tell me about her dates and you know was having so much fun and traveling and all these wonderful things and then her illness boom just out of the blue so all of that and you're exactly right was sort of at this one point that just changed the trajectory of our lives in so many ways for my father for me my sister the three of us and then what the outcomes of our families from i don't have children but my sister does i mean all of that is was impacted by this huge Hmm. you know disaster you know tragedy that disaster only it's tragedy that my parents divorced the tragedy was my father and his way of handling the, the divorce the tragedy was you know um my father essentially cutting us off um you know th- th- there's a lot of history there with just we had a restraining order against him for a while and my dad really lost hmm. kind of his, his sanity i mean he he had nothing i mean it, it, it was just it, hmm. he had to stand up and pull himself together um and he, he was so overwhelmed and could not do it in the beginning that, you know, there was a lot of threats toward me and my sister, well, me in particular. Um, Did he pull up in, know, a, in a van uh, very slowly? I'm kidding. I'm really sorry he, to make light of the situation. He, no, that, but, you know, he, let me tell you, he, you know, there were a few things he tried and he was uh, escorted out of places where he was trying to attack and, it was very, very, very messy. Um, but at the same so, time, you enter into psychology, so you're dealing with mental health while being yes. affected by mental health yes. too. I'm just wondering, yes. like, yes. if the, with, is there like a resurgence of? I, I just wonder how you're processing all that, and then also processing these concepts of psychology and stuff at the same time. Yeah. Um. You know, I, I think I had a really good kind of, I don't know, cover poker face where I think I appeared to be more competent than I was. I, I, I don't think I was that competent emotionally at that time. And I appeared to be way more competent than I was until I took my group therapy class and I was in the group. Um, and that's when I just saw myself evolve into total, you know, just completely fall apart um where you know my life is worse than everybody else's in this room and let me tell you why um very overwhelmed by kind of keeping it all together and i went back and read my evaluations i taught at antioch but i also went to school at antioch so i have a long history with that place and i went back and read the evaluations for the very first time since i graduated in 2007 or 8 or whatever just i think last few months ago and my competency like marks in every class were like excellent 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 in the process class it was she has so much anxiety that it's impairing it's not what she's asking it's the fact that the anxiety is so pervasive that it contains the relationship with the client that's what she needs to work on and there it is that it came from my process class that's the one What's process? place I couldn't hide it. 
So that was process one where we just sat there and pretended to be therapists with our classmates. And that was from my um, professor. And when you're just doing process, you're not talking about process. You're not talking about theory that goes into process. You're doing it. No way you're going to hide from that one. And he was the only one who just nabbed it and saw it, that that's where my incompetency was. So I do not think I was doing well. I think I was faking it, you know, fake till you make it. Um, yeah, no. And <laughs> the social justice ideology, I guess it sounds like you kind of left that behind when you entered into the corporate world. Maybe it wasn't pervasive yeah, in the did. media industry. So it wasn't really a salient concept. I know it's pretty no. big now, at least uh, yep. publicly facing. I don't know behind the scenes, yep. but. Uh, yeah, no, back then, no. This is why you had South Park and South Park that's still going. The most politically incorrect thing you can ever imagine, right? And they do it through the use of these cartoons and, and whatnot, that satire. That 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 show, if they tried to launch that show today, okay, in today's world of entertainment, it would never get off the ground because of the PC. And they didn't care. I mean, those guys were like, listen, we never expected for this show to go anywhere. So if you don't like it and you want to dump it, bye. They're very unapologetic. They didn't care. I mean, they're worth hundreds of millions of dollars, these guys, because it's syndication now. It's unreal. But at the time, people thought it was funny because it was humor. You know, like laugh at yourself. Don't be, take the world so seriously. Don't take yourself so seriously. That was very much part of the environment at Comedy Central. No one cared about that other stuff. We didn't look at it the same way. There wasn't, you know, it, it, the enjoyment of humor for for humor's sake was very valued still. That is not the case today. Those guys would have never been able to do any of this today. So, yes, all that social justice stuff sort of fell out of out by the wayside. Didn't really come up again until Antioch. In the but beginning Antioch, of when you were a student, was it there? Yeah, I, it was. I, you know, this one class, Society and the Individual, you know, it, it was... My, my professor for that class, actually, very interesting, was one of the Little Rock Nine. Okay, so he was one of the first, you know, the Little Rock Nine were, you know, the, the first black kids to integrate into, you know, white school in Little Rock, I guess, whenever that was. So if we kind of do, I, he may not even be alive still. I forgot um, even his last name, Terry, but I'll never forget him. But in that class, it was all about looking at yourself, right? Your identity, looking at, you know, your 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 social responsibility in the world. What does that mean um, to be socially responsible? What does it mean to acknowledge, you know, others lived experience? What is it? What is marginalization about that kind of thing? But there was no, here's how you have to think about it, or this is the way it was. It was always open for debate. There was a lot of space for me to say, listen, I'm a Middle Eastern woman. It does not mean that I believe, you know, in any way that the white man is the reason that I'm here where I am today. I can tell you exactly why I'm here today and what part was my responsibility and what part wasn't. Those kinds of things were conversations. And he was really, he encouraged that dialogue. He wanted that dialogue for people to be able to say, hey, that's not how I, you know, view it. And for that to be okay. There wasn't just one voice in the room. It wasn't, okay, everybody all the white people, men, women need to be quiet and let the people, the colored people, you know, pock, people of color talk. This kind of stuff wasn't the case. It was, no one was belittled 
um, in that regard or, or shamed in that regard uh, at all. So my experience with social justice was more about, let me get to know rather than assume something about you, let me learn about you. Let me learn about what you've been through so that I can have a more, more open mind as a therapist and not assume what people's lived experience is when they come into the room. And so that's how he taught that class. And it made sense. It was not what it is today where you have to sign waivers or and promises about acknowledging systemic racism and privilege in class. You have to sign... Uh, there, one of the students uh, spoke about this on CTA. Uh, she released a video. I, I could send it to you at some point if you want, but it was a student who her came out and said exactly what I had been <laughs> saying as a professor was problem. That wasn't the case then, so I didn't see so- social justice that way. I saw it as okay, you know, people are going to come to you from different walks of life, and are all going to have Western values. How do you adjust so that you don't judge people because they think differently? than you. That's where it started and it sounded great. And that's what I thought it was. So that was fine for me. But that was the only class where that ever happened. The rest of the classes were about what it meant to be a therapist. That was all kinds of digging deep and doing your own stuff, your own work. There was no competency for, you know, uh, awareness of, of cultural competence and diversity issues that impede our client's ability to succeed or, you know, um, taking responsibility for one's complicit, complicitness or complicity in maintaining this kind of oppressive system while acknowledging the pain and suffering this kind of thing was 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 not happening at that time to this level. I came back years later to teach a class, one class before I became full time. And when I noticed something was wrong was when I walked into the psychology department office and saw signs everywhere that said. Tolerance. What is it? Tolerance intolerance will not be tolerated. And I said, "Uh oh, I just knew immediately what they were talking about. 2017, right after Trump is inaugurated. Here we go, right? So that, whoa, that opened up such a door for them. And I sat there and went, oh boy, so if I have a different opinion about something, um, they're not going to talk. Yeah, the tolerance, I I must align or I will not be tolerated by them because I'm, I'm being intolerant. That's, it's this crazy... But I saw it, I knew it, and I said, this is this is a shit show. And okay, that's fine. I'm going to keep myself away from it, keep my head down and do my job and teach my class. And, you know, lo and behold, my class got bigger and bigger and more, more people wanted, oh my gosh, Christine, you have to take classes with Christine. She's one of the best professors in the All of this turned into a, eventually, Christine, will you work for us full time? You know, teaching faculty, even though you only have a master, it's very difficult to get a spot like that anywhere. I don't have a PhD. I can't be core faculty because I don't, um, I don't have a PhD, didn't doctorate beside nothing, you know, I'm not doing research. But in private schools, there's this level right there of teaching faculty that not all private schools require. It's preferred, but not required. Well, wait, well, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, you're a teaching faculty or you are teaching faculty just to be clear oh i was um the depart um i was 
part of the teaching faculty staff. Okay. So I was a faculty member and um, full time. And there are people there that were vying for position like that for however long being adjunct. I started adjunct. Now, once I seeped into being there full time, there was no more Christine, put your head down, teach your class and keep going. It, that it's not, it was not possible um, to do that any longer. And, you know, I would increasingly start to see these, these billboards and these, the signage and stuff going up in the department on the walls about, you know, politics and about, you know, activism and, you know, committing to social justice and all of this kind of just word salad to me that just, what does it mean? What do you mean? What are you, what are you talking about? And, you know, and I'd start to say to my students, so if your client voted for Trump, you're not going to treat them. And they said, no. And I said, huh, wow. You know, those are the kinds of things that were percolating even before I came out publicly and said, you know, this is what's happening at the school here behind the curtain. Um, I was already injecting that. I was forcing them to tolerate Hmm. white people. That's what, yeah, tolerate white people. They could not tolerate white people at all. White people, white men, none of it. That's what I was trying to get them to do. I found myself on the side of trying to like support white people, not because they're better or worse, but because the amount of hate and vitriol, that the word, the toxicity was palpable. Hate men, hate hetero, you know, sexual men, the heteronormative, old narrative bullshit, hate, you know, that's you need to hate. That's who's the, the, the source of all of your problems. So, hey, you start getting extreme i can get extreme on the other side so i started finding myself going oh my god these poor white guys that are coming to me as my students and going professor seifen christine you know i i can't talk in my other classes i'm like why not because i'm white and i'm a man one of them was heterosexual male they're in human sexuality and he couldn't comment because heterosexual white men and their sexuality it's toxic and it's all part of some, I don't, you know what? It was so heady. I couldn't even get it. And I'm thinking, well, we have a biological drive to have sex. They have like, like that's what we're talking about here. Okay. There's social implications. I understand this and there's reason. Okay. That's fine. But strip it all away. There's still a biological desire to have sex. How do you say that that doesn't exist? How do you just say that white male, you know, heterosexuality is just a toxic, you know, manifestation of, I don't, internalized hate and my God. And then white adjacent, what, what does that even mean? So we started going, they started going off. The, and I started telling these, these students, you know, gosh, Christine, you know, do you, can you advise me? I, I want to change advisors. I, you know, I just had this flock of people coming. And uh, they were telling me this at the time. I said, listen, you know what? Maybe this is unprofessional. Maybe it's not. I don't really care. But I'm going to tell you how it is. Yes, you are being bullied for being a white man. That is 100% happening in your class. You are being bullied. That professor is doing it. This institution does it. You know, I mean, in some way, I think I was like, hey, come after me so I can tell you how it really is, you know, kind of thing. There I was, you know, and I, I said it. 
and I didn't care. Now, at the end of the day, you know, and I struggled with this a lot, you know, can I just continue to be that one professor there that kind of gets away with saying certain stuff because she's a puck and female? Can I do that and still inject kind of this, I want you to think outside the narrative. I want you to open your mind. Can I do that and still keep my sanity? That was starting to grind on me. So I had to make that decision. George Floyd happened and I was teaching that day and the class erupted. We were on Zoom, the whole thing, whatever, erupted into just madness. And I found myself, I, I, I just interrupted the class and I said, stop, pull yourselves together. I need you to understand something about privilege and about what happens in this country and other countries. And I went off about my parents' story, about the bombs that they survived, the people that died, the fact that there is no recourse, you can't sue anyone, the police are all paid off over there. And they're all, if you're, if you're, you know, Coptic or, or whatever, and you come across a Muslim police officer, they'll put you in fucking jail, excuse me, they'll put you in jail. They will jail you for something. All of it came out of my mouth. I could not stop myself. And I was just going and going and going and going. And I said, so stop thinking that the only thing and the only client you're going to see is this bunch, this bubble that we are here in the U.S. and in these particular communities because that's not what you're going to have sitting in front of you every single time that you have a client. You need to understand, you know, that there's intergenerational trauma, not just from blacks, but from other regimes that people have blood from. Let me tell you why. And I'm going on for 20 minutes about this and it is dead silence. And I'm going, God, Christine, you're going to get fired any minute. Now someone's going to record you. And never, I never dismissed George Floyd. And I said, this is not to dismiss that. It's not to say we don't have problems absolutely reform yes and i want you all to stop crying pull it together and start acting like adults you know i stop and i said there is no more apologizing to each other in class because you know you're you're white and you need to there is no more saying you did this to me because you're right if you're going to do that get out of my class i'm not here to teach you a, a, a social activist class i'm here to teach you how to be a therapist I'm here to teach you how to sit and be with somebody in the same room, maybe totally different than you, but just be, because what do you have first? You have shared humanity. If you can't lead with that, you're never going to make it in this field. It won't happen. So one of my diatribes, you know, and I ended up, you know, saying and that quieted them. And I thought, God, I'm going to get fired. I saw several kids log off, like just leave the class. And I went, well, someone recorded it and fine. But I stood behind everything I said because what I said was true. It was not justifying what happened here, but it was putting some perspective onto it um, to understand that America is not the only place that suffers from problems like that. There's racism in the Middle East among people that are of the same background. It's like the Irish and the Scottish, okay? You can't just say lump white people. Right? The same thing in the Middle East. If you're from Syria, you're, that's different from than being Egyptian, which is different from being from Iran, which is different from being from Lebanon. They don't all like each other. You have to be very careful when you're walking around the Middle East as a Middle Eastern and what country you happen to be visiting, what you want to disclose about what you are. You know, that's not um, that's not a joke. I mean, it's just not it, it's again how I liken it to Scottish, Irish, 
and British people, all white looking, maybe even sound similar. Some people might feel like it's a similar accent. You don't know, no, right? There are a lot of tensions that had been there at some point. Mm. Okay, that's not what we're talking about today, but you know, not a great example for current, but that's kind of just to put context around this. That's what it's like in the Middle East. And it will be going on for centuries. I don't know if it ends. So that's what happened. And after that, I became very anxious before I would start teaching. I was very anxious before class. Um, very anxious about the case studies I was giving. I needed to put like this, you know, cisgender, non-cisgender. I, I didn't even know what the words meant. It started to just become so... And then, you know, kind of one of the final straws was, you know, me showing a TED talk about this, you know, treatment for addiction. And the person who hosted the TED talk or who was the speaker, she was a white woman in West Virginia uh, dealing with very poor, you know, areas there. They don't know running water and then poverty. Uh, my sister taught there for a long time and lived there. So I'm familiar with that state. And uh, they bashed it. They bashed me for showing a white woman speaking about drug addiction treatment. Hmm. And I said, listen, you know, that, where were they during the crisis of crack for the blacks in the 80s? And I said, I don't you know. We're not in the 80s with the crack crisis. There's a lot of mistakes that have been made. Absolutely. But you need to move forward. This is now saying, let's take something and modify it to the community that you're working with and see how it goes. You know, this is not going to be exactly the same everywhere. You're going to adjust this and adapt it to the community. You got to get, well, I just can't let go of the fact that she's white. And that they only care about saving the, the whites in West Virginia. I'm thinking, wow, do you all know that there's a huge portion of that state doesn't have plumbing till this day? Like, do you know my sister taught in schools where the kids were late to class because they had to pump the septic tank or whatever it is because it was going to overflow they didn't have electricity there's no programs there like there are here to help them i don't think those white people over there are privileged over somebody here who has access to resources and you know of color i i, I don't see that they're privileged I, it's, it's too big it's too broad so they're talking about saving lives of these white people are so upset about that don't have two nickels to rub together, don't have teeth. Uh, it was just abominable to me. And when I start to feel defensive that I have to take this other side, I just knew I wasn't going to come around after that. And I didn't. I didn't come around after that. What did you do after that? Double down? Slink away? I doubled down. I was on medical disability for a while because it had a couple of spine surgeries. So I used that time to just like recenter and, okay, Christine, now what? You know, where are you with all this? Found some organizations that I really aligned with what they were saying. And then did some volunteer work with those organizations that turned into an actual job that was paid. Uh, and then that, that's when I decided, uh, you know what, I have to leave. I have to resign. I, I can't. And I loved it. And I, and I loved supervising. I mean, even that, uh, you can't in supervision, you know, now uh, when you're supervising the trainees and the interns, those are questions about, like, is there, are they culturally competent? Do they, you know, in the room, if, if, if you're a white man, you're my therapist, you're, you need to say, Christine, how does it feel to be in the room with a white man? 
um, who's been privileged. Uh, what? You know, my, 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 I had a white therapist at the time, too, by the way, who out of the blue said, Christine, been going in for 10 years out of the blue. Christine, you know, how does it what's it like to be a Middle Eastern woman in a room with a white man therapist? I went, what? I don't I'm not here because of that. I I need to talk about these bad choices that I'm making. <laughs> I chose man for a particular reason. And I wasn't about, you know, it, it just was so inauthentic. Like he felt like he had to say that to show support. And that's when, again, you started to see sort of the, and he was actually the, the, the person who had told me, because he's also professor at Antioch, by the way, and he was the person who told me that, they were doing these fishbowl conversations with professors or professors of color sat in a circle like this and talked about how their white colleagues were sitting in a circle out here have ruined, you know, their careers or impeded or impacted or whatever words they want to use. And they had to sit and listen. And I looked at them and said, are you kidding me? I didn't see all that when I was just an adjunct. But again, when I became full time, you know, I, and I could still keep a little distance, but, popped on to these difficult conversations groups once and there it was right in front of me black and white exactly what he said this is what's going on and then you have the the white your classroom seminars that started popping up the white your classroom so with all that happening it just came to this moment i found had found this job and i i had to leave i i couldn't i i have colleagues friends that just uh think I'm I don't know what they think I mean I don't support the transitioning laws under 18 here with these kids I don't support it um I would not call DCFS if a parent refused to call their kid by their preferred pronoun and my friend my colleagues do it's what the law is now and it's what they believe so I have to not have these conversations. <laughs> so just to highlight that, psychologists yeah. have to call the Department of Child Services if mm -hmm. a child says that their parent won't call them by their preferred mm -hmm. pronoun. Yes. Yep. Yes. It's considered neglect, emotional, and they're, the, the kids have like been plucked from the house. They're sending a message here. I mean, if we want to talk about policy, they're sending a message. They don't go run after and pluck the kid out for suspected child abuse, sexual, physical right away, but they'll do it right away for that. It's like they're making a statement. So they pluck the kid out for a couple days, you know, freak the parents out. And then the parents go, oh my God, of course, okay, fine. We're going to give in. And they put the kid right back. It's a game. And here are my friends are, you know, my colleagues who I love and adore, but, you know, they're cogs in this horrible machine and they're doing it. And they're part of this. And I said to them, I'm sorry, but this 1,500,000 pronoun thing, this isn't even how people who are transgender, authentically transgender. I have a very good friend and colleague who transitioned when he was an adult and um, he's not on board with this stuff. And he had talked about that publicly and was once awarded the National Social Worker Association Award for best of the year. And they revoked it after he came out. He's transgender himself, Latino, and came out and said this type of kind of virtue signaling-ish pronoun stuff. It's not what we want. It, it's not how the trans, 
you, you this ally thing is completely you know condescending like we don't even agree with each other how are you going to go speak on behalf of so and the latinx right he doesn't believe in latinx because it's fundamental change to the origins of the language and his culture he was exed excommunicated they kicked him out they took the award back so you know, I can tell my friends that those things, oh, gee, well, that's horrible too, you know, and, eh. but at the end of the day, what they're going to choose, well, Christine, don't worry about it. All this kind of stuff, it's just a fad. It's just, it's trending. It's just the trend. We're talking about surgery medication. Now this is by this is not, you tried to go be goth and you, you know, or you went to the, you got the lime green corduroy pants at the Goodwill. This is on a level that is, physically harming you wait i mean it just is and that that point well made but is it just a trend that the uh psychological industry is perverting and destroying its own credibility in order to affect a nonsensical antisocial mental health it's just a mental health disaster and imprint that on it. Is that a trend? Mm -hmm. The entire mm -hmm. infrastructure Great of question. the government plucking children out of homes to send a message. Is that a trend? Or is that an mm -hmm. absolute totalitarian? It, you know, I, I was Germany a trend. Sorry to go there, but good God. It's not just the kids then, doing it. It's the entire yes. it's in, it's colleges. Yes. Yes. Sorry. And you, therefore, sir, are a white supremacist. You must have voted for Trump because that's what all of them would say if they heard what you just said. Those things I've been able to say kind of to a few people here and there. But to go further than that, we're talking about, Christine, what's happened to you? Have you been taken away and, and, and become one of those MAGA people that are domestic terrorists? I mean, essentially, it, it, it that. I, I don't I don't know how how disconnected I how could you not see this in this industry how could you not see the APA came out with their their official support of reparations how could you not it's not about the it, it's that they can't sleep at night unless they tell them themselves this is a trend they can't jump into the weeds that deeply because once you go there you cannot get out of that you there's no going back you never you, you will never see it the same again this is a self-protective thing so they can continue to do their job they have to shield themselves in this they absolutely must because the sting of that being ripped you know off of you yeah what do you do change careers they're not going to do that no they have to live with that little bit of, of de defense up where they, they just want to put their heads down and say, It's like a, a million little Eichmanns all over America. I'm yes. just following orders. Yes. Just following orders. Yes, I'm just following orders and I'm not going to step outside of that. I mean, hmm. so, it, you know, and I went to work for FAIR. It's, I don't know if you've heard of FAIR, the foundation, I guess probably so. They're not, uh, they try to be very uh, nonpartisan, centrist, I guess, but well, a lot of people think it's too, uh, it, it's uh, right-wing, you know, conservative, and it really isn't. Um, but that in and of itself was like, wow, you're going to work there. These are the people that are that are up on the 
on the web on the website that the the um horrible i cannot remember his name but Fred, frederick douglas and you know a couple of these other guys that like uh, are condemned right by the i i i can't even like Glenn Lowry, uh, barry weiss uh melissa chen i know those are the three yeah the yeah those yeah the board of it the board of advisors they're amazing those guys are just they're amazing they're putting out such really thoughtful content and having conversations um and you know daryl davis of course he's the face of fair fair was basically launched kind of from his point of view about the world which is the shared humanity piece and so you lead with that and um you know but you know the, the, the anybody from our past you know abraham lincoln you know is on our page like scrolling through kind of the history you know some of the forefathers or developers framers of our constitution um that in and of itself to them is denying you know uh you're, you're praising lincoln well you know he only got rid of the slave for his own it's like there, there's no answer that's mm-hmm. going to be okay unless it's i agree that's the answer that's okay with this crazy group that really have decimated i mean they just they've decimated they have gutted the education system in such a way i don't i don't know that it goes back i've spoken at some school board meetings i don't have children and i've spoken anyway because these kids are going to be leaders one day the decisions they make one day are going to affect me as a senior citizen um i you know and i do care for for kids in general i mean it's not just about me but it's that that's not it's it, it doesn't matter i don't have kids in school it still affects you know me and the people around me and that's my you know it's my sister lives in a very red part of california where you don't see as much of this going on um but at the same time she too is in a bubble in the opposite direction so she doesn't see that all this kind of nonsense is happening and that you know whatever is going on and little by little though it's being captured because all of a sudden her protected school district got a elective course on critical race theory and i said you think that's going to stay an elective course carolyn watch and see that's Mm going to be mandated and it is Mm -hmm. well there's no tolerance for intolerance anyway uh, they're just right it's this word salad and ideas that don't make sense they just flash into each other i mean it's it's lunacy and Mm -hmm. my poor you know dear mother you know she died many years ago but you know i i think about the love she had for the this country and i watch the hate that these folks i don't know uh spew out it's it's just it's uh it's chilling it's really chilling hmm. i said that you know, no one ever said america was perfect uh but this deep hate for our values and principles and 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 you know it's yeah, yeah I, we're I got... becoming <laughs> a dictator tyrannical led potentially communist country uh and no one sees it coming just like they didn't in Germany. I mean, we're playing out the same way. Hitler wasn't this way. wasn't a totalitarian in the beginning, was he? No, he came with the answers and was going to help. And look where that went. Well, yeah, I got a little heated. I just got a little bit. For some reason, 
I, you know, the, the activists are just kind of crazy and silly and, and annoying. Yes. But it's the yes. professionals that yes. really make me mad. Um, but yes, like you were saying, if the ideology in and of itself is, well, nonsensical, but furthermore hateful, it will destroy itself. It'll destroy the people. Yes. And they will just, yes. they will yes. wreak a bunch of destruction, but it will eventually yes. eat them from the inside out. So it can't yes. survive for a, a forever. The question yes. being, how much is it going to destroy before it runs itself out? That's the question is how much. And what happens in 10, 15, 20 years from now when some of the things, the, the changes that these people are making or whatever they're doing physically, it's not fully reversible. I haven't talked to a lot of detransitioners, so I'm not an expert on this topic, but I could imagine that years down the line, there's going to be a lot of physical problems that will show up. How, how, I mean, that's a health crisis also in my opinion that is actually a, a health crisis as well so they laugh at me when i talk about these things as being crises they just laugh who well, i'll grow it after how much damage the, the professionals and again it's after the professionals they laugh i'll tell them listen we're in a call we are in crisis in this country in this world it's a global crisis we are in crisis here culturally physically health-wise we're crisis i mean i'll just go on my thing and they just kind of look the other way. So I've stopped, you know, I've mm. just pulled it back and been a little more distant. So, you know, I've had to go through my own G. I feel kind of isolated and alone too. Yeah. Oh, you're back in high school. Yes. Yes. But it doesn't sound like Very you, much so. you're able to not stand out now. Yeah, no. Um, you know, we're trying to get this book published. CTA is asked me to write a chapter i wrote the last chapter of that book and actually um stella was that who i got your name from she wrote one of the chapters also the what's book, the book again you could probably tell you it's a compilation of kind of essays essentially the person who started cta uh val thomas what's He's, cta oh uh, critical therapy antidote oh, thank you not chicago um, transit authority no 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 the other CTA. Um, so he, and she's gotten, a, you know, she's gotten some books published and she's a psychologist also has written and whatnot, but, but she put together like what the kind of the CSJ, the critical social justice so an umbrella over all of this, all the isms. And um, she commissioned us to a few of us to write um, an essay from our lens. And mine was from the lens of being a professor who quit publicly and I had been a student at the school too. So the evolution of what it was, uh, just a really unique eye and that's what she wanted. So I wrote that the, the chapter and it's the last of the book and, um, can't get it published. I mean, publishers are just throwing it out left, right and center. This is great content. Wow. We love you Val, but we can't do this right now. And this is not radical. I mean, this is not this is like very just sane kind of stuff. This is not the crazy right, like, you know, it's wrong against God to be gay. I mean, this is not any of that, and they won't touch it just because, you know, I mean, look at the APA, right? I consulted with them for this thing they put together for the UK government, and um, I guess it went well, but 
remains to be seen. Uh, with who? Not the APA. Um, so there's through 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 CT through Bal. I met this woman Carol. She's a retired psychologist. They're, they're 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 trying to do the APA has that whole reparations thing. They're trying to one of the governing bodies there. They're trying to kind of impart changes like that. They haven't gotten to where we are yet in the U.S. They're like right behind us though so they pulled together some arguments to go present these legislatures and so they interviewed me for a while about teaching and why this was a problem and they presented it to these legislatures and they said they got a good response what does that mean i mean does anything change i don't know um but there has been a lot of this walls um so uh, when i was with fair too very hard to get in there yeah um, I'm, I have to wrap up in about uh, five oh, minutes yes. or so. But um, reparations psychologically, is that where we're going to give white people a bunch of mental health issues? Or are we going to <laughs> take uh, give, give, give black people a bunch of free uh, psychological medicine? Like, how does reparations in psychology work? That's an excellent question. And I don't know. I, it, it's so nice. I, I just, I saw it and I... I, I couldn't look at it further. That was, I had to just turn away and just say, this is disgusting. And I'm starting to hate my field. And that's not where I want to be. The integrity of what we do and what it is, um, is just being dismantled. And so it's become very difficult for me sometimes to, to stomach it. Uh, I'm a little more removed now because I haven't been working in that capacity for a while now. So I think I have more tolerance for that to be able to look at that and even ask those questions. Um, what do they mean exactly by that? And I do think it's about, you know, yeah, ser- ser- services for, for blacks and, you know, POC, let's talk and, for free and um, acknowledgement of your place in this systemic racism, white supremacy story, how you are complicit. This is what LMU, LMU came in out, tried to hire me too, by the way, before all this. And in the signature line, and I'm on Getter, that social, the, and I have this up there, the signature line is, you know, the LMU, this is officially from the president. We all acknowledge that there's systemic white, or systemic racism, white supremacy, and that we are either, you know, the, the, the oppressors who have instilled this, or we are the oppressed who are talk, who, who are to be owed. You know, I don't think reparations was the word, but that is the official standpoint of Loyola Marymount University in Southern California. Mm-hmm. They got to the Jesuits. You know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, <laughs> it's yeah. Like, that's what's cool. Yeah, so that's a whole other conversation on what's yeah, happening there. Yeah, yeah. I know, but it's um yeah, I was listening to Anyway, uh, and they get to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, so okay. Um what how can people contact you? What's are things that are coming up? Plug your work. Oh gosh. Ugh, right now I am on Getter actually. I'm just trying to you know, we're trying to get a Moms for Liberty chapter started here. Why are you on Twitter? What did you do? Did you do something? Ah, ah. I boycotted social media when it first started because I never thought it was a good idea. But I see how it has helped things as well. Hmm. So on Getter, I'm just Christine123. I didn't think I would even post on there and I've become more active. Um, so you can definitely find me there. Um, Christine.moms number four liberty hmm. um at 
Gmail. Uh, I have started somewhat. Uh, they, we're trying to get a chapter started in Ventura County. What we really need is we need the, the, the parents, grandparents, adults, anybody who cares about education in California, in Ventura County. We need those people to come together. There's a huge, the, the huge incident where a child, 17-year-old boy, maybe younger, 16, 17, was masturbating in class. And the parents uh, went and spoke to the board and they basically um, supported the kid doing that, the superintendent did. And so, I mean, it's just out, outraged. And that that's Conejo Valley School District. Anybody who lives in Ventura County, it, it's, you know, kind of leans red politically. Um, and so that right there, that's not something that the parents are. So it turned into a really big mess and the superintendent hired attorneys to defend himself. And there's a lot of people now fighting back and forth and he's saying about death threats and it's turned really ugly. So we just need people who are not afraid and willing to just stand up and say, Hey, you know, this isn't okay. And you don't have to be a parent. I'm not a parent and I'm chapter leader once mm -hmm. we officially get going. So that's really what we need here. And my focus right now is more on educating how this wokeism negatively impacts kids. So I've done a few presentations on that for some other legislature groups, but that's the main thing is uh, kind of that's where my focus is now is like the psychological impact, the negative psychological impact that this is having. Yeah. So they can get me at that email. Um, and I think our Stephen, I'll ask him at iCloud.com as well, but I'm not very out there with anything other than Getter. Uh, I don't have a huge following, but really this Moms for Liberty, anybody who wants to get involved, that's where I would really love to to have people. Cool. Christine, it was wonderful to talk with you. Sorry, I have to... You too. Oh, no, this now, is but... fabulous. Thank you so much. Such an honor. I really appreciate it. And I'm yeah. so glad to have met you. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you very much. And yeah. now I'm happy to be in touch whenever as well going forward absolutely absolutely um i'll, I'll let you thank go now you. so have a good day okay you too take care thanks so much bye-bye